Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for, as he, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and, and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That is God's word. You may be seated. Take a few moments, if you would, as our tradition is, to reflect on God's word for just a couple minutes. I don't know if you noticed that the confession that we read this morning really had a lot of themes coming from the prodigal son, squandered his gifts, squandered our gifts. I don't deserve to be in your, your house anymore. And then the Lord restore us back into your household. There's a lot of themes there from the prodigal son. And uh, the passage this morning doesn't necessarily describe a prodigal son, but it does describe the prodigal son's older brother who sat back and might have felt jealous and might have felt uh, discouraged by his dad's offering of mercy, restoring this prodigal son back into the household. The older brother didn't like that much. And as the church expanded, there are many people in in the church as it expanded that did not have a good time with it, that did did not like it. And so this morning, we're going to look at it's some of that expansion and some of the resistance to it. Let me pray for us. God, as 
we sit here before your word, each and every one of us, there's no one excluded from this, are, is vulnerable to your word. And we need it to live, to breathe, to, to just follow you. We need your word. And so we pray that you would apply it to our hearts and our minds through the power of the Spirit this morning, that you would show us what we need to see, and no more and no less. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so I was on my sabbatical for three months. I was out. I'm back now for a couple of weeks, and uh, I'm glad to stand up here and see all of your faces and see all of the ministries just chugging away and, and the people and the stories. It was so great to come back. Uh, when, I, when I was on my sabbatical for those three months, I really wanted to rest, and I did. I rested. It was very restful, uh, but the rest was not quite what I was hoping for or expected even, uh, it meant a lot of work. I worked a lot uh, away from the church, but I still worked. And let me, let me explain. There's, re- there's really two kinds of, of trips that you can take. Uh, you can take a vacation or you can take a youth ministry trip, one of our youth trips. Now, a lot of times we get kind of confused as parents and as congregants, you know, oh, we're going skiing or we're going to the mountains and whitewater rafting. It sounds like a vacation. But, but if you think about the things that we do on those trips, it's very different. On a vacation, my favorite thing to do is to unplug, disengage, sit on a beach. The only thing I work on is my tan. And my mind is vacant, hence the word vacation, right? But on a youth retreat, we don't do that. We try to make it an adventure, especially the mission trips, which are coming up this summer for middle school and high school. Our mission trips are adventures and restful, maybe, but we're really working hard the whole week. And that was more in line with what I was doing on my sabbatical. As I reflected on my life, my family, my ministry, the Lord really worked on my soul, bringing up things I needed to pay attention to that I had long since forgotten uh, and taken for granted. On this trip, I was always thinking, reflecting. It was a new place and a new pace, and I was really able to see the entire forest instead of just one tree, which is my normal experience here at Christ Community. Um, And I hope now coming back that the next 10 years will be fruitful as I attempt to implement what the Lord has shown me in my time away. Uh, as I began to to think through different phases of my life and and this church, one of the things that occurred to me over and over again was the energy that this congregation has in the way that we come together and the way that we serve the Lord. The excitement, man, I, I found myself grieving on those three months. I missed you all very, very much. I, I could not imagine my life without you in it. I just couldn't imagine serving the Lord without you. And I was, was talking, Paul and I were talking to the garrisons just recently, and they're in Romania trying to serve the Lord there, and, and they're disconnected from this body, and they're having some growing pains trying to figure out where to connect to a body of believers over there. It's tough. And I saw the loneliness in their eyes the same way I saw it in mine. My, me, because I was on sabbatical with them because they're separated in Romania. And so I'm very grateful for this church. Well, in this mindset, I was drawn to the book of Acts because I really wanted the excitement again. I wanted to see the church growing and moving, and it really did help me reflect. But man, I I tell you, I came to 11 
over and over and over again, particularly this chapter or this passage, the second half of chapter 11, these verses that we're reading this morning. I came to it many times. I remember the first time I read this passage that we're reading this morning. I was in a coffee shop in Banner Elk uh, called Mountain Grounds Coffee. And after spending three hours hiking on a trail, seeing God's great creation there, I went to this coffee shop and I read this passage. I remember sitting back in awe. And three things occurred to me. First, I was in awe of God's unrelenting call to create a new community of people that has never been seen in the history of mankind. Christians, this new category that that people can now belong to, Christians. I also saw in this chapter two responses. One is Peter's. And the other is Barnabas. So let's look and see what we can learn together from this passage. First, it's a new word. First called Christians here in Antioch. And you have to ask yourself the question, what is God's plan here? What is this big idea with the church, with us, you and me today? What is his big idea? And, and where is he going? What is the trajectory of, of his church Where's it moving? Where's it going? And, and as, as I began to reflect more and more on that, uh, I, I began to think, well, what, what does it take for a new word to enter into the English language and become a new word that we actually use? Words come and go all the time. And if you think about the category or the concept good, if you call something good, every generation has five or six different ways to refer to the concept good. Wicked, bad, cool, hot, cold. I don't know. We haven't used cold yet. Maybe I'll start that. But the words are changing. You can, you can almost date someone by, by that word, whatever they use for whatever the, the concept of good is. But that's not what we're describing here. Good is a concept that lasts throughout the generations. That's not what I'm talking about here. Here, we have a new word for a new reality. That's what's happening in Acts 11. It's a new thing that didn't used to exist, and now it does. And the question I'm asking is, when was it invented, and then when was it referred to by this new word? Because the two dates are very different. All right? Let me, let me give you an example. When something is invented, it takes a while for the word to emerge. Think of the word, for example, telegram. All right, the, the word telegram was uh, the actual telegram itself, not the word, was invented around 1830s when Samuel Morse, who invented the Morse code, sent the first telegram uh, to his buddy in Baltimore from Washington. Um, It happened around 1830, 1840. Right in that time frame, they were developing this machine, but they didn't really call it the telegram until years later. The same thing with fax, right? There were faxes in 1924 where AT&T sent pictures over phone lines. 1948, they made the first desktop fax machine. But we didn't really refer to faxes until later, later, even the 80s. And then the word email says the same thing. It was invented in the 60s, right, by the government to have an, uh, a way to communicate with each other in the vast government <laughs> we have here in America. Uh, but we didn't really use the word email as a, as, a, as, an, as a nation until the 90s. 
I remember being in college. This might date me. I remember being in college thinking, email, what's that? Electronic mail? It just flies through the air? That's awesome. You know, it was really cool, this concept. And, and now we really don't use the word telegram anymore, do we? Why? Because the telegramming doesn't happen. It doesn't, there's no machine. Nobody uses it. Same in Acts 11. There's a new reality that's come in. Okay, when was it invented and when did it catch on? That's the question I'm asking. That's how we're discovering what God is really up to. Well, the answer to the question, when was it invented, really is from the beginning of the Bible. I mean, we see it from the very beginning. But it doesn't catch on until Acts 11. So why is that? I mean, at least when Jesus died and rose again, right? When he finally ascended into heaven and looked at his disciples and said, here's your marching orders, right? Go into all the nations and make disciples of every nation, right? And and teach them to obey all I've commanded you and baptize them. Create a new community of people, in other words. And Jesus didn't say, and you shall call them Christians. But that didn't really happen the day Jesus ascended. When did it actually happen? So it it actually happened in, in right here in our passage, Acts 11. They were first called Christians. So let's, let's look back at God's invention. God said to Eve, after she ate of the fruit, and after she was cursed with Adam, she looked at Eve and said, there's going to be a man who's born of your seed who will come and defeat this serpent. There's a promise for someone to come and make right everything that's now wrong. In Abraham, God made a promise that your Family will become a nation and become this huge thing that will bless every nation on earth. And then the prophets and the kings, you read through what they write in the different books of the Old Testament. And there's all of these suggestions and all of these promises and hints of a Messiah that's going to come. And a new people, once you weren't my people, but now you are my people. And a new people will be formed. And finally, Jesus comes. But let, let me take you to 1 Kings 8. This is right before, uh, this is before Jesus, obviously. But uh, in 1 Kings 8, Solomon is dedicating the temple. And I skipped over this. I remember reading this. I was in Banner Elk when I read this. I, I remember the day. It, was, it blew my mind. 1 Kings 8, P, Solomon is praying to God to dedicate the temple that he just built, the great big temple of God. And he says, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel... But has come from a distant land because of your name. So they've come because of God's name. For they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand. Same word used in Acts 11. The mighty hand of God is moving, is with them. So people see this mighty hand of God. They will come and pray towards this temple. Then, O oh God, hear from heaven, from your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you. Here it is so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people, Israel. This is the trajectory. This is the big idea of God, is to move the gospel, the salvation of man, to the rest of the world and create this new nation, this new community of people out of every nation and language, bringing them all together in union. And it happens with Jesus. He, he gives the Great Commission in Acts 1.8. These words, but you will be my witness. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Those are three steps you see taken in the rest of the book of Acts. Jerusalem first, Judea, Samaria next, and then now to the ends of the of the earth. 
And we see lots of progress reports in Acts. You can see it very clearly, this trajectory, this big grand vision of God. Progress reports come often. First, in Jerusalem, in Acts 6, we read, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. This is the first step into, into Jerusalem where the gospel goes in, creates this new community. Still no word. No one's called. They just call them Jews, I guess, or I don't know what they call them. There's no word for it, right? And then in Judea and Samaria, finally, when that place, that region is reached, we see this progress report in Acts 12. But the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. Still, again, no word yet uh, at that point. And then at the ends of the earth, Acts 19, somewhere in the middle there, where did the word emerge? We read it here in Acts 11, where first in Antioch, we were called Christians. The word finally emerges, and it becomes a real, a real thing in reality. And that is really exciting to hear. And I was so excited to come back to Christ's community because while I'm sitting out there in the mountains wondering, okay, I've got two and a half months to go on my sabbatical. I can't wait. I see this grand vision. I can't wait to come back and see it enacted right here. It's implemented right here in this church where you guys would be able to look at your, your neighbor, look at the people in your small group, look at the people you hang around and say, you know, without Jesus, I don't think we'd even be friends. You, you know, it's not bad to have friends that are like you. It's not bad to have friends that, that think the way you do. But if, if you ever have one of those friends that you're like, I don't think I would ever hang around you if it weren't for Jesus, if it weren't for the gospel. You see, that's, that's so exciting to see. That's when you really see what God is trying to do between the different nations and languages on earth. So we have this great plan. Now let's look at the two different responses. Now, I will say there is a similarity between the two. Uh, there's a lot of similarities, actually. They're both um, responded to by Peter and Barnabas, two great leaders of the church who get it. In the end, they get it. They obey God. They don't resist God. They get it, and they they move with God in obedience into God's great plan. But there is a difference, and I'm going to talk about that this morning. Peter's response, first of all. If you read Peter's response, his experience in Acts, and then the first half of Acts 11, you see something interesting. You see that Peter is conservative. Peter is hesitant. He doesn't take many risks he's very self-conscious about how he looks and 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 what is he looking at what is peter actually paying attention to when god moves out of his comfort zone well my, my first time i read it i thought peter was merely trying to teach and persuade these jews who criticized him for eating with unclean uncircumcised men right that 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 he was just saying, guys, I'm on board with God. I want you to be on board with God. Come on. Let's go. Follow me. But that's not the tenor. That's not the nuance you get when you read carefully Peter's response. I think there's a bit of a self-defense attitude in Peter. And the reason I think that is because not only the things that Peter says, but remember, Not too long after this, it happens, and Peter comes to these conclusions, he falls again. And in Galatians 2, remember, the apostle Paul has to go to Peter and say, you're only eating with the Jews, you won't eat with the Gentiles? 
And Paul confronts him to his face. So Peter struggles with this, and he's hesitant. And, and listen, in, in verse 5 through 10, Peter recalls his experience with Cornelius, this, this moving out of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Now we're moving out to the world, to the Gentiles, to the unclean, uncircumcised, barbarians, all those people. And he's moving out, and he says, to get me to move, God showed me a vision three times. A vision from God, he's telling his Jewish friends. Okay, it's not my plan, guys. All right, the, the sheet comes down. I see all these unclean animals and God says, get up and kill them and eat. And what does Peter say to his Jewish friends? I said, no way. I looked at God and said, no, I've never done that. I never will. How, how dare you ask me to do that, God? And his Jewish friends are like, that's right. Here you go, Peter. You're one of us, you see. And then in 11 through 14, he says he opens his eyes, and to his surprise, there's three Gentiles standing right there, right there. And they're asking Peter to go to Cornelius. And Peter's like, to a Gentile with the gospel? You see, I mean, part of you is like, yeah, Peter, didn't you hear Jesus when he said to go to the, yeah, yeah. but, but still, he's, he's surprised by this. And he's telling his Jewish friends, guys, it's not, it's not my plan. He literally says, in 11 through 14, he says, the Spirit told me to go with them, you see. I wasn't going on my own, but the Spirit had his hand on my back, and I was, okay, I'm going. Where are we going? It's not my fault. And then finally, 15 through 18, he goes, he explains the gospel. The Holy Spirit does what he says. Jesus predicted, remember Jesus predicted this, and God gave them the Spirit of the baptism of the Spirit, the same as he gave to us Jews. And listen to the words, who was I to stand in God's way? Self-defense. You see it now, don't you? Peter's standing there saying, guys, look, we got to go this way. It's not a good idea. It's God's idea, but it's not a good idea. But let's go. Let's go together. And they hesitantly, with great fear, step out. Now, what is he looking at when he takes that hesitant, fearful step? He's looking at the past, the traditions of men. That's what he's looking at. You shouldn't even talk to a Gentile. You shouldn't eat with them. You shouldn't sit down with them. You should. And God is saying, look, I'm doing a new thing here. I'm moving out, and I want you to follow me with, with joy, not with fear. And Peter hesitates. Now, Peter gets it, uh, but some others don't. Do you remember how they got out of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and, and beyond? You remember how these early Christians moved out? It was a call of God? No. If you read Acts 6 and 7, you remember it was martyrdom, persecution. Stephen died a terrible death. And you might be next. And then finally they say, okay, we'll leave. We'll go. And as they went, they, they took the gospel with them, as missionaries do, right? They were forced out to become these missionaries uh, but in verse 19, we read, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Is that the plan of God? That is not the plan. I mean, the Jews first and then the Gentiles. But they never get around to the Gentiles. You see? So even after this Cornelius thing, even after that, there's still some hesitation. There's some, there's some steps being taken, but it's out of fear, and it's hesitant. There's no joy. Here's a principle for you. I remember my youth pastor, 
from when I was a kid, and the, lots of people told me this actually when I was a kid, that God wants you to always move out of your comfort zone. Think about your comfort zone and, and move out of your comfort zone on short-term mission trips. That becomes a reality for you. You're always out of your comfort zone on a short-term mission trip. And God is always calling you to that, right? He's always moving you out of your comfort zone. And I began to think, on, I remember in my sabbatical, I, I thought, what is my comfort zone? What should my comfort zone be? And, and it dawned on me that my comfort zone should be God and God's plan. Not, I think about you guys as much as I missed you, and I think you're my comfort zone. I think this building, I, there's so many memories here. I mean, of youth games that we played that we shall never speak of because things were broken. But lots of games that we played here, you know, lots of sermons that I've heard preached here. Lots of times we've sung together. I mean, I just have so many. VBS is in here. So many memories. This is my comfort zone. I want to stay right here. I don't want us to grow. I don't want to go to two services. I don't want to build another building. I just want to just stay. Everybody don't, nobody move anywhere. Just don't move, right? Keep the jobs you have. Just stay here. And this is, you know, this is the way we often feel at church in our comfort zones. But here's the principle. If God is not your comfort zone, God will get tuned out when we get sent out. And that's what happened so often in the first part of the book of Acts, with mostly Peter and others as well. This is called, in my prayer life, selective hearing. If I give God 15 minutes, God will speak. And when he starts speaking outside of my comfort zone, whoo, I'm busy now, i got to go. I tune him out. But on my sabbatical, I couldn't do that because I didn't have anything to do. So I was just like, okay, speak. And it was always like God moving into my comfort zone. Okay, I've got to go for a hike. I'd get on the trail. God would come again. And it was just on the trail. So I'd go to a coffee shop and I'd start typing or something. And God would come again. It's just, I can't escape him on my sabbatical. But in life, you can, you can attest to this. You, you can really listen selectively to God when he speaks to you. And that's a dangerous thing in a church. Uh, I was talking to Rhett Nobel just recently. Um, he plays for us in the band, and he was telling me about his old dog, Valentine. Uh, and uh, it's a nice dog, but he pretends to be deaf. They, they, you all think he's deaf, right? But he's not really deaf, because this is what Rhett said. He said, if I yell at him to chop, stop doing this or stop doing that or come here, he won't, he won't hear me. But that dog can hear a doggy treat rapper 500 miles away. You see, selective hearing Am I like this? Are you like this? Changes at Christ Community is where you'll find it. What's the next step for us? Should we take a bunch of you and go plant a church downtown? Is that, is that a good idea? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> send them. No, no, send you. Wait, that's my comfort zone. I don't want to do that. What if Paul got another job? That Don't ever, Paul, please, do not leave this church. You hear the groans. If you leave... Paul, we get so used to Paul preaching every Sunday. We love it. If he left, how many of you would leave too? I mean, not the leaving the church and all that. I'm just saying, what is your comfort zone here? Are you really listening to the Lord? Or are you selectively hearing what you prefer in a change, the way you want to change the church? So many ways we can see this in the church itself. I discovered it in a different way. I didn't identify with Peter too much with regard to the ministry here at church. But what God showed me surprisingly 
is <clears throat> I do Judea and Samaria pretty well. I also do the ends of the earth really well. I'm always kind of going, let's go out there. Let's go do this. But then God said, what about Jerusalem, David? What about your own home? What? You read the Bible to everybody else. You lead mission trips for everybody else. You plan retreats for everybody. Well, what about your kids? What about your wife? Are you reading, are you reading the Bible to them? Do you think about them proactively? Think about where they're at and plan for the future? Do you have a list of the attributes of God you want your kids to see and are proactively trying to tell them about them? Because you can't tell them all at once, right? After the service, I'm going I'm to go to the communicants class, and some of you guys and your kids are going to be in there with me. And these are mostly first grade through fifth grade, some, somewhere in that range, or middle school even. And, uh, and some of these kids, I mean, I, today's my favorite class. If, if any one of you said, I'll take over, David, I'll teach the communicants class, I would still want to teach this class today. It's God and what is he like? It's the attributes of God. And as I talk about the attributes of God, the omnis, you know, the omnipresent, here's what it means, the omniscient, and here's what it means, the omnis. I see in the eyes of the kids, when they look at me and they hear my words describing God, they're like, their minds are blown, and, and their, their eyes light up with the glory of God. Parents, do you, do you do that at home? You have such a great opportunity, as I do, to go home. That's the mission field for me. I mean, I want to go home and I want to see my kids' eyes light up with the glory of God. I want to serve my wife sacrificially so she understands the grace and mercy and love of God as well. So as we think about this in Peter and hesitance, and fear, how does that apply to you? Well, there's a better response in my idea. <laughs> Here's a great response. Barnabas. Barnabas sees something. He sees something Peter doesn't. It says in our passage that when Barnabas comes, he sees the grace of God. This is verse 23. When Barnabas came... And saw the grace of God, he was glad. Another, earlier it said the hand of God was with them, was moving with them. Now just think about that. What did that produce? What did that vision produce in Barnabas? Gladness. In other words, joy. Instead of being hesitant and fearful... And paying attention to traditions of man. Barnabas, who also was a Jew, he didn't do that. He looked at God and what God was doing, and all of a sudden he was full of faith and then full of joy as he moved out. And that's what I want for my life. That's what I want for my kids. That's what I want for each and every one of you, that we would see God moving wherever he's moving and, and, and throw away the fears and just say, I'm in. I mean, I imagine Barnabas was sitting back on his bed thinking, let's see, I baptized 12 people yesterday. I got 12 more tomorrow. I, in my Christianity 101 class that I teach every night, I've got 40 people and 15 that want to add. I'm overwhelmed here in Antioch. There's so much going on in these places to the ends of the earth. And so Barnabas, what does he do? Watch what, he, watch what Barnabas, he doesn't freak out and panic. No, he goes and searches for Saul. And he brings Saul, the, the word Saul, not Paul, but Saul along, and Saul assists Barnabas. 
And for the next few chapters, it's Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. It's like that. Saul's assisting Barnabas, right? But then in Acts later on, 13, 14, as it progresses, there's a passage in there that says that Saul, also referred to as Paul, starts to go on his missionary journeys. And you you know what happens? It's Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas switches places. In other words, Barnabas disappears. I wish we could be a church. I want to be a church like that. I think that happens a lot, actually, in this church. I can think of 20 stories where that happens, where someone goes, wow, there's a huge harvest here. Let's get someone to come along. And they, and you get someone to come along, and they push that person into ministry, and then they, they explode. And, and think great things happen. And then that person backs up and disappears, just like Barnabas did. That's the way we're going to grow our church. That means that people up front today aren't going to be people up front. People that run ministries, they're not going to be the people that run them tomorrow, maybe. There's going to be a change of leadership, possibly, as, as we grow and as we move with God in obedience to his call. But I want to remind you, there's joy. There's joy. There's a, there's a show called Storm Chasers. It's on the Discovery Channel. This guy, Reed, is his name. Some of you guys know that show, Reed. <laughs> he gets in his Chevrolet Tahoe, and he puts these little, like, things on the bottom. And he outfits his car with bulletproof glass and extra armor, and he has all these computers and radars and cameras. and I mean, he's got all this stuff invested. And he gets a couple of guys to help navigate and drive the car, and he goes out and chases storms in Tornado Alley all he does and he and when he sees a storm now it's funny because they'll be talking and laughing and la 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 everything and then, and then the storm comes and the you know the drums start playing the music starts going and reed's going like this you know and he's watch the show he goes crazy he actually yells get the camera get the camera go over there you know, he's just yelling like his eyes couldn't be bigger and he's literally running with no fear he's running to the storm what is he paying attention to What is he not paying attention to? You see, he's paying attention to the glory of this awesome thing called a storm. When you and I are like looking at uh, flying pieces of wood and trucks and other things that fly in tornadoes. But Reed's out there running straight into it. And and that's that's the picture of what I, I think Barnabas was doing in Acts 11. Like I said, I could tell lots and lots of stories but I'm going to tell one this morning of someone that came into my mind um, over my sabbatical. And it's Graham Radford, who was sitting right there. But I don't know where he is now. He probably ran away because I told him I mentioned him. Graham came into the youth ministry as a middle school student. And that's, that's when I became the leader. And we, we grew over the years. I remember Graham came to youth group because his parents made him. He liked the cookies, the games, the friends. Um, he was, you know, he was growing in his faith. He learned the gospel, knew, knew all about Jesus. Uh, but in high school, Graham really, really started to, to figure out, there you are, really started to figure out um, his faith for himself, kind of taking it on as his own faith. And, and I remember, you know, Graham was, saw a lot of lives that changed and God's hand moving. And one of them was Aaron Alenzi, um, who was more, now, now she's Aaron Alenzi. And when we saw Aaron, you know, become a Christian, I was like, you know, everybody in the ministry was like, wow, this is great. Let's do that again. Let's go chase this storm somewhere else. You know, who else? Who's next? And so our ministry really caught on fire and moved, and it was really fun, and Graham was right there and a part of that. He went to college, and it was really tough his first year, so we quit. Your first semester, he quit. 
And that's, that's when I said, hey, Graham, you want to be a youth leader? Well, I'm working at Chick-fil-A, and I'm, trying, you know, I'm making good money, but you know, not sure about college. I don't quite know how to get back in, and I, I think I want to go back in. I certainly do want to go back. I don't know how to do it. So we figured out a plan, and now he's back in college. He's a leader. He's, he's as a leader. He's growing, and he's teaching, and he's developing this skill of just explaining the gospel. Uh, and I remember a few times Graham would just say, look, all I want to do with my life is explain the gospel. And I just see their eyes open. He would, hey, how was the van ride home? You should have been there. The van ride home, these kids that we bring in, you know, from the tutoring program, they come in and they're like, they, they saw Jesus for the first time. It was so cool. He's telling these stories because he's so excited about the gospel. He's got joy. He doesn't have fear. And he's moving into this storm, you know, and he doesn't even see the dangers. And if he does, he puts them aside. He was on staff for four years as an intern. No, I don't think any other intern did that. And now is his year where he cycles off. He's the coach over at Coastal Christian for baseball. He's going to graduate in a year and be a teacher. And as I think about Graham 10 years from now, I guarantee you he's going to be chasing that storm wherever God sends him. Whatever school he goes to, he's going to be in it to win it. He's going to have joy when he comes to church. Church isn't a duty, right? This is a place we get encouraged and healed and trained and equipped to be sent out with joy, like Barnabas, to see lives change. So Barnabas, full of faith, full of joy. That's what a Christian is. That's what a Christian is. And this morning, we're going to take communion. We're going to come up the center aisle and we're going to think about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we look at these elements, what I want you to think about, what I want you to uh, reflect on as you come to take communion this morning is what does it mean to be a Christian? In communion, we remember Christ, but also in communion, we participate with Christ. It's more than just a thought. It's an action that when you eat the bread and when you drink the cup, the the wine, you're, you're actually participating. You're making his goals, his desire yours. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This is the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. And the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? If you are not quite on board with with the Lord, if you can't call yourself a Christian, someone who follows Christ, then communion is a time for you just to reflect. What's keeping you from following Christ? Think about that. But for those of you who have decided to follow Jesus, this is your, your chance, your time to come up and participate with Jesus. Let me pray for us. The elders will come. Music will play. And as the elders go, they'll, or the, yeah, you, you guys will, uh, sorry, the elders will come here. You guys, they're going to dismiss each row. Just wait for your turn. Let's pray together. God, I pray as we, as we eat the bread and we drink this cup, that you would cause us to remember and reflect what it means to follow you.
what it means to be a Christian. Dispel the fear and give us joy in the power of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.